So a friend asked me recently if I got nervous when I did these. And I said, no. But, you know, of course, it's absolutely a lot. This actually makes me a little bit terrified. It's kind of like when I do meet the teacher night with my students. For the most part, my students and I were fine. We get the parents in front of me, and I just feel, like, super intimidated. Don't really know why. Well, I do know why. It's just, it's uncomfortable. You feel like you're going to be judged. And here I am wanting to produce content. Yay, content. I think I have things to say. I want to share them with the world. Honestly, maybe make a little bit of money, but we're not going to say that because that makes me feel like a tool. But yay, content. I have things to say. Make an influence in the world. All of which is true. But it's also a little bit paralyzing because you produce content, you put it out there, and you know, you feel judged. So now that we've gotten our intro out of the way, let's get into beatitude number four, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which some of you are probably going to think, huh, by the end of this, probably a pretty decent introduction, talking about his insecurities and thinking about the things that he needs. You know what would really fix those things? A pursuit of righteousness. Hmm. Divirony. Anyway, swinging back around. So I have my little notes to start here. So as I go through the Beatitudes, it's odd. So like I think that they're really, really good to take in these small chunks and look at each one one by one. But the danger in doing that is we can absolutely miss the forest through the trees. So we started off this whole project by seeing this big forest of the Sermon on the Mount. And then this one little grove within the forest of the Beatitudes. Now we're looking at each tree individually. It's like, ooh, Beatitude tree. Sorry, that just sounds like it's going to be some kind of a pun somewhere. Uh... Anyway, we focus so much on this one beatitude, this one tree, that we completely lose sight of its context within the grove, within the forest, yada, yada, yada. So hopefully we're going to try not to do that. Or we're going to try to hopefully not do that. However you want to phrase that. So the beatitudes are an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which I've been arguing this entire time, is a big case study or illustrative for this concept of repentance. Because that's exactly how Jesus begins his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is repentance but reorienting one's entire perspective and therefore one's entire modus operandi to being in line and conjunction with the will, governance, and direction of God. All right, so back to my little start here. Forgive me, you'll probably get a sense of when I'm actually reading something that I wrote. I was like, oh, that's a good idea and well-phrased. And when I just kind of start going off on stream of consciousness don't judge. So, like most, like with much of the Beatitudes, much of the meaning of this one, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, the meaning is actually pretty obvious. The statements are clear, they make sense, their impact lies not so much, however, in their profundity as in their conviction. A conviction as piercing as only a stating of the obvious can do. Wow, that's good prose. Basically, it reminds me kind of like the Wile E. Coyote um, scenarios where we're Wile E. Coyote and the Word of God is like one of those netfuls vacuum Brits. And it just smacks us upside the head. And we get, you know, the lump on the head and the stars around. We're all big eyes like, oh. Not many bricks aren't complicated. They're pretty simple to make. They're a pretty simple shape. When you get them together and then just smack someone with them, it has a really big impact. 
So that's what a lot of the Beatitudes are. They're not super complicated. Even at first sight, you can pretty much get the irony that Jesus has in it, as well as the redirection. But it's so, like it really does just smack you upside the head like a ton of Matthew bricks. Alright, so let's look at this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So, like always, Jesus is twisting and then turning the most fundamental assumptions or the basic assumed criteria for what it is to have a blessed life, as we categorized earlier, a good life. One lived within good circumstances and a good context. But, as the entire concept of repentance indicates, it's not about the quality of the life one lives, but rather the quality of the life one leads. Here I have to pause, and I'm tempted to go super teacher mode. I was like, oh, wow, that's really good, too. Basic idea being that the life you live being kind of like external and going through the motions, whereas the life you lead has this kind of intentional aspect to it of driving and direction. One is almost mindless. The other is extremely mindful. All right. So this actually brought me back a little bit to starting at the first beatitude and its ironies. So we're going to start there for a second. I think it has a nice segue into Beatitude number four. So Beatitude number one starts off with blessed are the poor. <clears throat> yes, we know poor in spirit, but the irony is that they think that they are like Jesus could start talking about blessed are the poor. And they're not automatically going to imagine, you know, poor in material sense. So anyway, going back to this idea that it's about the quality of life one leads. So let's look at this. Wealth and possessions will not make me a better man. All right, so I really want to say something profound here, but, you know, this, this is something we've all heard before. But it's so obvious. We hear it, but we don't get it. We understand the idea, but we refuse to accept it. So this is where a lot of people, particularly some of my students in chapel, possessions don't make us a better man. Clothes don't make the man. Like, yes, I know, I've heard that. I may even actually believe it. But again, that's not my MO, modus operandi, method of living. Literally, Latin. Sorry, pause. I was looking at my notes, had somewhere to go. All right, so hitting on this idea, I guess, one more time. The horse is dead, so let's beat it a little bit. We all know that this idea that having these possessions won't actually improve the quality of our lives. I forget which book it's in. I really should have done the academically smart thing and re-looked it up. And one of his early books of City of God, Augustine, really hammers the pagan Roman gods for this very reason. They have all these rituals all these festivals, all these ceremonies, and he basically comes down to saying, but what good do they do you? They give you no direction in actually how to live a moral life, these divine beings. They provide you with no actual benefit. You want a good harvest? So you pray to Ceres or Demeter, whichever. She might give it, she might not. But you're the same insecure hot mess when going into the temple as you were coming out. Same deal. You pray to Aphrodite or Venus, give me a lover. She gives you one, she doesn't. Either way, you're the same insecure hot mess going into the relationship, being in the relationship, coming out of the relationship that you were the entire time. None of these deities give you any actual indication or guidance or governance or direction or commandments to actually know how to be improved in the quality of your being, of your person. 
how to actually lead a good life. That's why the philosophers have to step in and give philosophy, which is divorce from any kind of potential ancient theology. All right. This, by the way, if the segue doesn't make sense, is also why I'm somewhat resistant to uh, financial literacy books. It's not that I'm resistant to the concept. I'm actually kind of bad with money, and I really need financial literacy. And I've been going through some of these books with a buddy of mine, and it's been quite helpful. But I really buck at some of the assumed perspectives, at least in the titles and particularly the subtitles, because they drive at this very thing. Your life sucks. Improve your life right now. Become a real boy, Pinocchio, and you will all of a sudden be stable and secure and happy. But we know that these things don't actually produce that they say they would. This actually reminded me when I was preparing for this of Proverbs 30, verse 9. So, I guess starting in verse 7, this is uh, the words of Agur, not Solomon. So, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. And this is the part that struck me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Okay, now I could go off on there. My mind started circling like a, you know, like a Japanese bullet train, like speeding down the drain. Tons of different scripture references that we can bring into this. But to keep it concise, the reason why Agur wants neither poverty nor riches Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So basically, what Agur is getting at, which again, it's obvious, but sometimes stating the obvious is exactly what's obviously necessary. When one is impoverished or perceives himself to be impoverished in some way, we will steal or do whatever we need to do in order to obtain that which we lack and have deemed that we need, even if only for a good reason. So this is basically Jean Valjean and why he went into prison stealing bread for his sister's kids. And that's my cat, so give me just a second. We'll be right back. All right, here we go. I wish we could say that were for a sponsor break, but no, sadly not. But that's pride. Anyway, coming back. So when we're impoverished, we'll do whatever we need to do to get whatever it is that we think that we need that will make our lives better in some way. Like I said, Jean Valjean stealing the bread. Interestingly enough, I actually just read about Rousseau, who in his confessions, yes, title stolen from Augustine, talked about stealing some asparagus from a garden for the sake of giving it to a friend who would use it in order to eat. And this is the very same thing. But... Crimes. Anyway, sorry. Back to my notes. When impoverished, people steal, profane the name of God. That seems a little bit harsh. What is that? Okay, so what crimes, what vices, actually, are we willing to justify, seem reasonable to us, in the face of some kind of poverty or destitution? This also reminds me of the song Fancy by Reba McIntyre. Hey, it's a fantastic song. But basically, long story short, a mother in New Orleans is about to die baby's going to get taken away. They live in a shanty, dirt floors, roaches everywhere, no money. She is desperate to provide her daughter, her young teenage daughter, with anything that might actually help her be secure and stable 
in this wretched world that she's in. So she spends every money they have, buys her a nice dancing dress and some pl- uh, high-heeled shoes, and basically sends her daughter out on the street to be a prostitute. <gasps> How could you? Well, actually, to a certain extent, it makes a lot of sense. She loves her daughter. And when desperate to have any kinds of means for survival and potential thriving for her daughter, she grasps at the only final idea that makes sense. But then again, when we're faced with such poverty, what are we willing to justify? And they do seem reasonable in order to address that poverty. But if we're willing to justify these things in addressing poverty... Then the flip side about riches, well, I have all this now. I got it for myself. Who's the Lord? Sometimes we may say, thanks be to God, and yeah, the Lord willed, and so therefore I have, but we kind of really don't operate that way anyway. So, yeah. On to Beatitude number four. So, basically, Beatitude number one Sort of like roundabout addresses this idea of poverty not having something. And when you are hungry or thirsting, well, you are not having something. You're deprived. And like always, Jesus both flips then turns. So before we get into the metaphorical meanings of hunger and thirst, which there are, Let's take a bit to literally look at what the words mean because they have a metaphorical meaning based upon their literal meaning. All right, now's the point where I'm getting nervous because I feel like I'm getting a little bit lost and my nose are like fantastically organized, stream of consciousness and whatnot. Anyway, here we go. All right, so hungering and thirsting. Those who hunger and thirst, they basically crave substantive sustenance. So they recognize that they lack and therefore yearn for whatever it is that will help keep the body healthy, strong, fit, able. Able to do what? Well, able to function, able to work, able to undertake and accomplish those things which the body would do and those things which it should do. Basically, if you're hungering and thirsting, you're craving the nourishment and sustenance necessary so that the body can live a blessed life. Now, when the body lacks its nourishment and lacks it severely to the point of, you know, craving, hungering, and thirsting, well, we call that malnourishment. And what happens when a body is severely malnourished? It can't function properly, cannot perform as it ought. It becomes emaciated. It becomes wan. The muscles start to deteriorate. The mind starts to go. It can't function. Like, it can't move. Joints creak or don't bend the way they should. And basically, if you're craving nourishment, you become kind of like a broken down and decrepit Anchises when you could be a heroic Achilles. So, yeah, classical references. I'm a Latin teacher. Forgive me. So, it's only proper nourishment in the proper amounts, consistently consumed. I'm even waving my arm and gesticulating when I do this, which could allow for the body to be and to function as it ought as is right. And there transitions us into the concept of righteousness. Because it's not food for the body that we are to hunger and thirst. It is for righteousness. 
Righteousness is one of those words like faith and love, which we say in the Christian context, which I love to hate, because it's never defined. Now, I really did say a little bit earlier that uh, the word of God is like a ton of acne breaks. They're not complicated. They just hit you. Well, same thing with these words. Problem is, you still have to recognize what they mean. And sometimes we have these words that we've so Christianized that we haven't bothered defining them. We just assume what they are, and we have no idea. They're not complicated. We just have to actually state the obvious. So I looked it up. Blueletterbible.org. Fantastic website. In a broad sense, which I think should be taken as a fundamental sense, this Greek noun, dikaiosune, is understood as, quote, the state of him who is as he ought to be. All right, that sounds lofty. So in the fourth beatitude, Jesus admonishes his listeners to consider not what makes for a healthy body, but what makes for a healthy person. What is it that renders a person, quote, as he ought to be, able and fit to perform that which he would, by his will, or should? And well, now this raises a really big question, one that nowadays we kind of implicitly don't like to acknowledge, and that's the question of teleology, meaning ends or purpose. Does the human being have a designed purpose for which it was created, the way that a screwdriver has a, des a designed purpose for which it exists? Short answer, yes, he does. This brings us to the greatest commandments, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And as I was reminded of those, I was like, oh, those are accurate, but a little bit too Christian, maybe. I have my students in the back of my head. Yes, we know, we've heard this. Not practical enough, possibly. Okay, so let's jump to Micah 6.8. Same thing with the greatest com uh, two commandments, just reworded. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. There's the pursuit of righteousness. So, submission to God is the only thing which renders true, sober justice and mercy possible. SJW. And it makes justice and mercy possible, both in its giving and... In its receiving, I can only receive mercy. I can only be on the receiving end of justice, properly understood and accepted, if I myself am pursuing righteousness, which is basically a state internally of how the human being ought to be. So, do you, do I, do we, do any of us, sorry for equivocating, do you hunger and thirst or crave to more accurately be the image of God? That's basically what this all boils down to. And so if so, then pursue the nourishment necessary to make this possible. Seek him out. Consume his word. You know, uh, seek God and you will find him. Jeremiah consumes his word and it nourished him. Store up his word, meditate on it, accurately understand it, and know God. And then only then will you be able to be and function as fully and healthy a person as you ought to be. Ready for every good work. Another scriptural illusion. So basically, in a nutshell, why are those who crave righteousness blessed? Well, it's because they're the ones who are actually going to seek it out. And they will find it. Because it says, seek God while he may be found. 
calling him while he is near. And it like, okay, yes, that's true. But that's not the reference that I should have given. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So in this, Jesus is either foreshadowing or at least tying something into like a cohesive whole, whereas a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, seek first and all that. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek and ye shall find. Feels like I need to have like something really big after that. That was a dramatic moment, and already this one's going really long. I try and keep these relatively short because I just really don't like rambling sermons. But I guess 20 minutes and you know and a half—that's not bad. All right, thanks guys. Don't judge. Love you.